Good morning, women of strength. It is Wednesday, and we are so excited because we have got an incredible story for you from our friend Mary. Mary's from Michigan, and we first met her in our VBAC Link community on Facebook. It's been so fun um, being able to record stories from these parents who we just kind of really gotten to know a little bit on our Facebook community. And then all of a sudden they share their big announcement on the community one day that they had their VBAC. And then we're like, oh my gosh, will you please share your story with us? And then all of a sudden we are here recording with them in the studio. And it's been really kind of fun to make that connection. So we're so excited to hear from Mary in just a minute. But before we have Megan read the review, And before we turn it over to Mary, I wanted to kind of share a little bit of a story about something funny, not funny, it's not funny, but something interesting that happened in our community today. There was a woman from Northern Virginia who had thought she had found a VBAC supportive provider, but it turns out he did a big bait and switch on her and he told her, basically, he said, I'm going to just pull it up and read it right right for you because this is just too good to ad lib. All right, here we go. He said, listen, I'm at the point in my career where it's my prerogative to take on cases I want and not take on cases I don't. If you want your VBAC, I'll try under these stipulations. If not, fire me and best of luck finding someone else. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. And his stipulations, he had given her a sheet of paper with a whole bunch of rules on it. Now, when you're going for a VBAC in a hospital, you usually have to sign some kind of consent form that says, I acknowledge that there's a risk of uterine rupture and I know that VBAC's not guaranteed and you know things like that. Every hospital, I think, has a different version of that consent form. Basically, just the idea behind it is informed consent, but we kind of know that they always lean more towards the dangers of VBAC and the big scary risks of it. But this one just really blew me away. And I'm just going to read a couple little lines from it. If you want to go and read this for yourself, go and go back and search in our group from the post that was made on October 16th. I know it feels like forever ago, but um, it's there. So a couple things from this vaginal birth after cesarean section policy. He said, this is her provider says, if you're interested in pursuit of a vaginal delivery after your cesarean section, I must ask you to accept the following terms. I'm not making this up, guys. Okay, let's just listen to this. You will be examined at 38 weeks to determine if your cervix is ripe or ready for labor. I will determine this and will not allow an attempt of vaginal delivery if the cervix is unripe by your due date. If your cervix is ripe, you may elect to wait until 41 weeks for delivery by C-section. Yeah, that happened. He said, I will determine the best estimate of your due date and this will be used for any further consideration of your plan to attempt vaginal delivery. Like this is crazy. Next thing he says, you will, like notice these, notice the language in here. You will be scheduled for repeat C-section on a day not past your due date. You must go into labor spontaneously and be in the active phase of labor by your due date. If you do not, you will proceed to deliver by cesarean section. Really? 
Like, you guys, this is a shocker, though. Listen to this. Every practical attempt to deliver a healthy baby and to protect your health will be undertaken, but no guarantee about mental or fetal outcome can be guaranteed. You will accept that there is a risk of fetal and or maternal harm attempting to deliver vaginally after a cesarean section. The degree of risk is difficult to calculate, but is greater and in some ways different than the risk of a planned cesarean section. Do you hear the strong language in this letter? It is insane. It's sickening. It is disgusting. And it is patriarchal. And it is awful. And it is degrading. And I would even go a step farther to say that it is setting the woman up to be assaulted or abused during her labor. So luckily, this parent that was in our community today said, all right, see you later, walked out of the office and is now finding a new provider so that she can have an actual supportive provider and not somebody that plays these tricks. I just had to tell you about that because it's really, really important when you're selecting your provider to make sure that they don't have any crazy policies. And if they make you sign a consent form, ask to see it at your first visit with that provider, because this is a little bit crazy. But anyways, after that story, Megan has our review of the week. I do. (laughs) So this review is from Anna on Instagram, and she says, a big thank you from the Netherlands. Four weeks ago, I got my V back. I learned so much from you. I went to the chiropractor. I listened to all the podcasts. I also read all of your blogs especially when the gynecologist a few days after my due date suddenly told me maybe my pelvis was too small (laughs) to have a natural birth and that my baby may be too big. First, I cried, and then I remembered all the women from your podcast also getting bullish information. (laughs) Hey, I'm reading reading the real thing. (laughs) That's what it says. BS from information. She said, I read all your blogs about this and was so happy that I got chiropractic care. And guess what? I pushed a healthy baby girl out. My firstborn was 400 GR lighter. Grams. GR grams. In the Netherlands, they measure oh, yeah. differently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So her first baby was 3,800 grams. I don't even know how many pounds that is. I don't know. Well, well poop. We got to <laughs> look that one up. <laughs> hey, Siri, how many pounds is 3,800 grams? 3,800 grams is 8.38 pounds. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's Australian. Wait, so what did it say? 8.4 pounds. 8.4 pounds. And so 400 grams lighter. So... That's awesome. She said she's very happy she got her V back. And thank you so much from Holland. That's I so fun. That. Yeah. I saw that on her in- a message come in because we get messages on Instagram yep. all the time from people yep. asking questions or just sharing their success stories with us. And I saw that one and I just grabbed it and I'm like, we've got to read this on the podcast. Yeah, that's an awesome one. Well, congratulations, Anna. You are tuned in to the VBAC Link podcast with Julie Frankham and Megan Heaton, VBAC moms, doulas, and educators here to help you get inspired for birth after having a C-section. Together, they have created a robust VBAC preparation course along with this uplifting podcast for women who are preparing for their VBAC. Although these episodes are VBAC specific, they encourage all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a cesarean from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here are your hosts, Julie and Megan. 
You know, um, it's really funny because that review kind of reminded me of my favorite birth affirmation. Megan, you know mm. what it is. Get that big baby out of your vagina? I don't no, know. Which that's one? what that's the name of our that's, blog. I know. My, our, my favorite affirmation is my pelvis is huge. Oh, my pelvis is huge. My pelvis is huge. Yes, yes, yes. But yeah, I, I want to make a shirt. Do you think people would buy it if I like made a shirt? I think people would buy it. Yeah. We could like give them to our people that take our class or something. That would be so cool. (laughs) Everyone, shirt size is required (laughs) time of sign up. That would be fun. I think one day we should do that. That's super fun. Anyways, Mary, are you still there? We've just been chattering away over here. (laughs) I'm still here. Oh, good. I am so glad. (laughs) Well, we would love to hear all about your VBAC. And I'm not... I. I want to share some details, but I'm not going to because we want to give you enough time to share your story. Okay. Well, from the reviewers from, you say Holland and from the Netherlands? Yes. I'm from Holland, Michigan. What? (laughs) Seriously, Julie does this all the time where there's these weird like relations to like when people's podcasts yeah. will air or like re- like this like review it that's it's so my funny it's my spidey She's, senses yeah i was gonna say your spider tingle or my my Petey, <laughs> peter peter <laughs> peter tingle, tingle. yes <laughs> that's so fun well awesome so you are in michigan so are you in holland, holland michigan Mich- yeah holland michigan right now Holland, michigan is that where you're at yeah awesome uh-huh. that is so cool super cool <laughs> Awesome. Well, let's hear this awesome story of yours. Okay. So first, number one, I pretty much had like a wing it mentality. I had little preparation. My husband and I took a hospital-based childbirth class. I skimmed what to expect when you're expecting, which is a free book at the doctor's office. I'm not sure if they do that still, but that was free and I took it and I totally bypassed the C-section chapters thinking that I definitely wouldn't be one of the 30% of first-time moms delivering cesarean. I read nothing about breastfeeding, and I thought, how can something so natural like childbirth and breastfeeding be so difficult? I had a normal, healthy pregnancy. I had um, had to do one extra ultrasound. I had some heart family family history, so I had to go see a specialist. But other than that, it was pretty healthy. Um, Our OB, we pretty much loved, and we wanted her to deliver our baby, and so badly that we actually decided to induce on a day she'd be on call, which is at 40 weeks and three days, and which you ladies know that that's definitely not enough time to give a woman, yeah, to labor on its own. So I was very, very naive, and I put a lot of trust in the medical system, thinking that, well, if it's available, then I'm sure everything will turn out fine, just fine. Like, I, everything will just be great. So I was pretty naive. Uh, so we decided to induce, and I, I remember my OB saying, do you want to know the risk or anything like that? And I said, nope. And I, I didn't care. I don't know why. Um, just being dumb, I didn't care about the, the cons, I thought, well, many moms do this, and they deliver vaginally, why can't I? So I was induced in the morning at 40 weeks and three days. By the afternoon, I was dilated to a three and got the epidural because a, a nurse on that shift told me that the anesthesiologist was going to surgery, and oh. um, she, didn't, she didn't know when he would come out, and I thought, oh, gosh. You know, I am scared because what if I do end up going to, what if I 
think is too intense and it's not available to me at that time. So I was uh, pretty scared and ended up getting the epidural. Later on, I stopped progressing after four centimeters. By then, I had internal field monitoring, and they had to break my bag of waters. And it was late in the evening. My OB told me that my baby was presenting Eastern Clinic, mm. and it just nothing was progressing. And she's like, you know what? You're, you're physically exhausted, and your demeanor's changed. I think we should really think about getting a C-section. And um, huh. I just decided, you know what, I'm, yeah, that's right, I am pretty exhausted and let's mm. just do it. I just want to meet my baby. Let's get this thing over with. So we ended up doing the C-section and then immediately in recovery, I, I was just extremely tired. I, I missed my daughter's birth bath and I, I felt like I just, I don't know, I just felt like, wow, like my body failed me. I, I'm, I'm not good at this already. I'm, I'm a new mm-hmm. mom and I can't believe it. And so I just was really down the dumps and, um, I struggled with breastfeeding right away. My baby couldn't latch. A nurse gave me a nipple shield right away. And, um, a few days later in the hospital, my baby lost 11% of, of her birth weight and she got jaundice. And then after talking to some lactation consultants, they suggested that I power pounds before my milk came in. And I also had to supplement with formula because of the weight loss and use a nipple shield and use a hazel baker. So you know what that is. <laughs> Have you ever used that or seen a client use that? No. Yeah, so I had to use all of that all within no. the first week. That's really pounds. weird. Hmm. Yeah. Or interesting, sorry. Yeah, so say interesting, yeah. Yeah. So I had to learn how to do all of that. I did that for the first few weeks and then totally just let that go. I was going to say, that that would be a lot. (laughs) Yeah, it was a lot and it was overwhelming and I didn't know that, you know, being a new mom, recovery and C-section and all that stuff was... a lot of stuff. Very, very overwhelming. And I had um, like an in-home nurse to visit like that first two weeks just to do weight checks. But then I got the hang of the breastfeeding. So it was from then on, it was good, 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 good. Yeah. Easier. And then with that, um, with my daughter, several months passed by and I got postpartum anxiety and um, I didn't know about it. I never experienced it, obviously. And I kind of self-diagnosed through reading lots of books on postpartum mood and disorders and just figure that I think that's what I have and that lasted for several months and I think it was just being just overwhelmed and we also like moved to a different state my husband went back to school and I was pretty much on my own while he was at school full-time so that was pretty rough but I knew oh and then I found out about the doula profession and lactation consulting. I thought this is something that I really would like to pursue. So I kind of kept it in the back of my mind and sat on it for about a year until we became pregnant again two years later. And I actually found out I was pregnant a week before my doula training. Oh. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) 
I knew with my second pregnancy that, okay, I need to find a VBAC supportive provider mm-hmm. and learning about just the birth process and VBACs. I knew that's what I wanted and a doula. So again, with my second normal pregnancy, my provider at the time said, okay, great, let's do it. I support you. And then she actually ended up being VBAC tolerant. Mm. <laughs> really upsetting. Like I, towards third trimester, really, she, she ended out. up, yeah, basically, um, every appointment was, okay, let's talk about scheduling a C-section every single time I saw her. So that was pretty upsetting. And it was at the point where I couldn't like back out and find a new one late in third trimester. So that was a bummer, but I thought, you know, maybe let's just get through this and maybe she, I don't know, maybe I could just really mentally get her out of my head, but that totally affected me because every time I thought about her or it just really messed with my psyche, which is, you know, your mental Mm -hmm. state is very important and it comes to um, the birth process. So Mm -hmm. that affected me tremendously. So we kept going back and forth. She said, well, let's, let's schedule it at 40 weeks. And I said, no, you got to give me more time than that. And then she said, okay, well, what about 40 weeks in three days? And I said, no, that's just not enough. And then she said, okay, well, what about 40 weeks in five days? She said, okay, 41 weeks and that's it. So we oh, pretty much heavens. compromised at 41 weeks. Wow. And um, towards the end, she would just give me these little scare tactics. Well, you're putting your risk, or you're putting your baby at risk. Your baby could die. All of these things, just, just, just putting a dagger in my gut, really. And um, I just kind of just, just let her give it to me, and I'm just gonna ignore her because at that point I I couldn't switch, so I just knew I had to had to deal with her. And at 40 weeks and five days, I had a schedule of NST at the hospital, and she ended up being on the floor and she gave me a vaginal check and she said I was 80% effaced and one centimeter dilated and she asked if I wanted to be induced by fully bulb and I thought, hey, why not? And I'm already here, so let's do it. So I got induced that morning and it took 12 hours to get to a four or five. So when the bulb comes out, it took that long. And I've never... At never feeling contractions before, I was pretty, it came on pretty strong in the middle of the night, and I got panicky, and I I didn't know if I could, it was, I felt like it was just coming too fast, too strong, and um, we ended up calling our doula, and I just felt like we just didn't call her soon enough, because everything was happening so quickly and so fast that I was getting just too, just too panicky, mm-hmm. and I ended up getting an epidural at like four or five centimeters, and she, my doula, sh- showed up at that time. So it gave me some rest, and I was able, or my body fully dilated, 100% effaced in the afternoon, and I pushed for two hours, and my OB was uncomfortable for going more than that, and she suggested that I get another, get a a C-section. 
So it wasn't emergent, but at that point I was exhausted physically and I thought, well, I feel like I tried to let my body do this on its own and had I waited a little bit longer or pushed maybe, maybe she would have came out vaginally, but it is what it is and I I chose to get the C-section again. Mm-hmm. But the recovery was a lot better than my first. Breastfeeding was great. She had normal 10% weight loss, no jaundice, and we actually left the hospital a day early. And the hospital that we were at with my first two, it's actually, I could see the hospital outside my window. So we're like that, we're very, very close. Very, yeah. Um, yeah, so, but... Um, for my third, uh, we got pregnant probably after 15 minutes. 15 months. Oh, I was like, 15 minutes? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's <my> no. <laughs> that's like where my head went automatically. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I knew I wanted to attempt to be back again. Mm-hmm. I just knew I just wanted to give it another shot. I trusted my body, and I, I wanted just to find a provider who truly was the back supportive. Mm-hmm. And um, unfortunately, since I, I just said that the hospital is literally outside my window, I had to commute 45 minutes to go find one oh, who would take me on. So I ended up finding OB and he said, you know, it sounds like the first two, you your body just didn't get the chance to labor on its own mm-hmm. and let's, let's give it a chance and let's let's do this. So I ended up going with that provider that's half an hour, 45 minutes away. I knew I needed a, a doula again and I hired my doula um, from my second pregnancy. And I also wanted to try prenatal, um, see a prenatal chiropractor and um, just learn more about the birth process. So I took more childbirth classes, learned more about it, more VBAC education. I found evidence-based birth, spinning babies. I found your podcast. Yay! Helpful, yeah. So, and I found some episodes that really stuck with me. There's one in particular, I think she gave birth in West Michigan, too. And her name is Mary. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, I don't know what episode that was, but yeah. I just kept listening to that over and over again. Like, yes, that, that can be me. So again, I saw a chiropractor in the second trimester. Again, normal, healthy pregnancy, except for that one extra ultrasound. And then I had prodromal label for weeks, and I've never felt that before in my first two. And um, at 40 weeks and five days, I went into labor. My body did it on its own, and I thought, wow, this is crazy. Contractions began around midnight. I texted my doula and husband, and at the time with having prodromal labor for weeks they're like yeah yeah okay um we're gonna just go to bed and you let us know if it's the real deal so I labored at home all night and I don't know why why do you why does labor come on at midnight I don't I don't get it because the body's relaxed the body the mind is so relaxed and melatonin helps get labor started and oxytocin which is released while you're sleeping Mm -hmm. hormonal (laughs) so I couldn't rest they weren't they were um, they were strong, but I just could not sleep. I could not fall back asleep. So anyway, I labored at home from like 12 to midnight to 5, 6 a.m. And um, 
I woke up my husband saying, this is pretty intense. I, I need some help. So he was giving me some physical, physical comfort measures and whatnot. And he said, well, these contractions are actually two, two to three minutes apart. So I think we should like go to the hospital. <laughs> and I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. I, I don't even, I don't have a bloody show. Like I think I'm fine. And plus, I, I'm, I'm a doula, so I didn't want to, like, show up at the hospital at, like, a two or something. So I thought I'd just probably just stay at home. I'm probably that. But we ended up calling the on-call midwife, and she said, well, you sound like you're coping well. Why don't you just take a shower, take a warm bath, and um, see where you're at after that? So I ended up doing that, which was very comforting. And then I thought, you know, I'll just try to have some breakfast. But the minute I couldn't even digest toast like I couldn't even I had when the contraction would come I would have to drop my toast and really focus and hone in on every single contraction that's when I knew I have to I think this is it's time it's to go time. in uh-huh. yeah it's time so we let our doula know we were so we had to make the drive and um, we get there and we decided to walk in my husband's like do you do I need to push you in a wheelchair I said, no, well, you should, but it's fine. But, like, we'll just we'll just walk in. It's no big deal. So we go in there, and the nurse checks me, and she says, you're a six. And I was thrilled because I thought I never even got that far without even being, like, panicky, like, my with my second birth. So I was really proud of myself. And we called our doula, and I can hear her, like, screaming in the back, like, in the background of the phone, like, yay, she's at a six. We got admitted. And my doula got there, and I labored in the tub. And it's one of those jacuzzi tubs, so you can, like, position the jets on your back in different ways. Mm So I was able to do that, and I labored on the toilet a little bit, and I got checked, and I was um, at a 7. So it took all morning just to progress one centimeter. So I was a little bit defeated, but I thought, okay, let's just keep going. It got to the point where I just needed to get the edge off, so I decided to do the nitrous oxide just to take the edge off, and that worked for a little bit. I thought that, wow, this is this is probably something I could use while I'm pushing because I, this is feeling great. Like, I thought that I could birth and have the nitrous oxide without getting the epidural, but then once I felt like I could, the pain was manageable, I felt like someone totally cranked up the labor dial, like, to 100 or something. Like, it just was Mm. so intense. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I think this is what women are talking about when we're talking about transition. Like, I totally feel self-doubt. I feel like I can't go on. And it was just so intense. And I mentally gave myself, okay, let's give myself an hour and see how I do and see how far along I am. Let's do a vaginal check there. So we ended up doing that, and I was about, I was an eight, and I decided to get the epidural. But then I had to wait for almost two hours for it. Um, So that was difficult. So there's a lot of on the ball, off the bed, and... um, were they, a lot of was changes. anesthesia, like, not available or something? Um, the anesthesiologist was in a different room with the mom who, they were just weren't getting the dosage right on mm-hmm. someone else. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So it was just taking a long time. Mm-hmm. So they were on the same floor and just next door, but just taking really long. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up getting the epidural, and then honestly, like two hours later, I was ready to push. I was thrilled, and I did have some doubt because that's where I was with my second, like ready to push, and this is where she got she got stuck and then things didn't progress. So I thought that was was going to happen again. And so I just, in the back of my mind thought, okay, there's still a chance that I could get a C-section. Hmm. Uh, my doctor, it was a, a team of doctors. So the one that I got, uh, she was a doula for, I think she said that about 13 years before she went to med school. So I felt like Oh my gosh, I'm like getting, I have like the dream birth team. I have a doula slash, I actually have two doulas and a doctor <laughs> and my partner. And I just felt like, wow, everything is like aligning. This is great. So she was on the floor and um, she was very encouraging. And she, it took me four hours to push my baby out. And she was with me that entire time at the foot of my bed, just waiting patiently for this baby to come out. And she, I remember her saying, like, you know, your baby is in the birth canal if you want to feel your baby's head. So I reached down there because at that point, like, still doubting, like, I could get a V back. I told myself, okay, I can. It's really, like, he's really, like, down there. So I reached I know sounds um, sounds TMI, but you can't get TMI with nope. if you're in the birth profession, right? No, nope. just can't. So, There's no such thing, <laughs> <laughs> right? That's what I thought. So I reached down in there, and I, with one finger, I just reached down in there and felt the top of my son's head, mm. and I thought, "Oh my gosh, this is totally happening! Uh-huh. I am going to get my baby back. This is crazy!" And I felt like just everything changed. We tried everything. I and the epidural allowed me. It was like a low dosage or something. Like they were finicky because I'm like petite Asian lady, you know. So, <laughs> um, so I was on the squatting bar. We were. I mean, we were just like trying everything just to get this baby out. And then finally, I was just, I was just on my back, and they were just encouraged me to push. And he finally did after four hours, and I was just thrilled and I just couldn't believe it that I got successful feedback mm-hmm. after two cesareans when people told me like you you can't you know that's not you can't do it that there's no way you're putting your baby at risk you're putting yourself at risk and I remember that my doctor with my second told me if you come see me again we're gonna cut you open oh my, oh my gosh are you oh serious <laughs> Oh, so I got like gasped and coughed that at the crap same time. Drives Holy me nuts, cow. That I stuff hate that. drives yep. me nuts. And oh. she said, I advise you to not have more than three kids. Oh, good heavens. Because too many cesareans yeah. put you at a higher risk. But nobody tells mm-hmm. you that. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So that's my story. <laughs> Those are my three stories. So proud of you. So proud Seriously. of you. Thank you. You know, a lot of a lot of women, because we trust the system, right? We do, just naturally. Yeah. Like, we've been groomed to trust the system. And I'm not telling mm-hmm. you not to trust the system, but I'm telling you not find to always <laughs> trust the system. Yeah, and find a good one. But um, a lot of women would be like, okay, 
like, I guess this is their last baby, and they may have wanted five kids. Well, and that happens so mm-hmm. much. Yeah, it does. And, right. and like, oh, okay, I guess I can't have a vaginal birth. Like, I really wanted one, right. but okay. And it's just, it's hard. It's so hard. You know, like me too. Like, I was told I would never get a baby out of my pelvis. Never. You know? And then she mm-hmm. did. And then I did. And <laughs> it's just so hard. So I'm proud of you for educating yourself and being informed and and doing the things that you needed to do and then trusting your body trusting mm-hmm. your body and the ability that you have to push that baby out and when you say you know I'm just a small Asian woman <laughs> I actually have a small Asian woman client right now she's being <laughs> induced tomorrow she's a VBAC mm-hmm. so um really excited for her and and everything and and she has that in her mind that she can't push this baby out because mm-hmm. her mm-hmm. provider with but with the c-section it was really frustrating you guys if you could only read her op reports um, oh my gosh they literally say on them after seven minutes of pushing it was clear that the that the person would not get this woman would I not know this client yeah get oh my God. Um, Tell me about it. um yeah would not get the baby out seven minutes she pushed twice and the doc was like Boom, C-section. Yeah. I so, bet he had some bias against her small Asian-ness. I wonder. Mm-hmm. I really do wonder that. Petite. She's yeah. very small. I do wonder that. And they told her that her baby was too big and um, her pelvis was too small. Her baby was seven pounds. <sighs> seven pounds. It's just so, so frustrating. frustrating. Um, and <laughs> she's believing it a little bit. Mm. And so we've really had to work in our prenatals for her to not believe that because she's got a she's got a great pelvis even her midwife's like you got a roomy pelvis in here girl like you might be small but you can do this so send yeah and that's what my provider told me yeah she said and by the way your pelvis it looks great so awesome it's very against what my other my my the provider with my second one said so yeah you know i'm getting a little frustrated with providers lately (laughs) like we know that there are some really amazing ones out there but i feel like Mm -hmm. with the system it is so easy for providers get overworked and tired and set in their ways Mm -hmm. and like i was just talking about before this before you shared your story the provider's like i'm far enough in my career right now that I can, well, what, was, what were these exact words? I forget. I can pretty much take the births I want and not take the births I don't want. So if you want to be back, you've got to do it with my rules. And I feel like mm-hmm. it's easy for, writers to, easy for providers to get sucked into that trap because they do a lot of work. They don't know how to properly process their traumatic births or like I'm sure they've seen some things that are really, really hard in yeah. the birth space. Uh-huh. And... They are tired and they're exhausted and they see see birthing women all day in prenatals and then they deliver babies all nights and sometimes on the weekends. And I feel like it's really easy to get sucked into that trap. But I also feel like that's not a good excuse to just mm-hmm. treat a woman like she's just a number. I have a client that I just had a prenatal with last week and she was like, my biggest fear is that I will be treated like a part of the system and not like an individual person. And mm. so we did a little fear release. My favorite one thing is write, writing everything down and then burning it on fire. Just, you know, I really love lighting, lighting and mm-hmm. lighting all the fears on fire. And we did that for her, but it just really sticks out to me. And I feel like we kind of see trends sometimes like in our community and with our clients, Megan and I, and 
I feel like that's kind of been a, a trend lately is there's not individualized care. It's not happening in most parts of this birthing country and even I would say the birthing world. And it's really sad. And specifically about VBAC after two C-sections, Megan had how many providers? 12 or 14? I forget. 12. Well, I visited 12. And I 12 providers mm-hmm. told her that she would never get a baby out of her pelvis or yeah, that they that would I let her trust. try. Let me try or that I should probably trust my provider that told me that I would likely rupture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. she, but do you know, do you know how many people would talk to 12 providers? Probably one. It's and that's really Megan. Exhausting. Like it, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to fight against the system and to get what you want. But I want to talk about VBAC after two C-sections really quickly because a lot of people, oh my gosh, I can't even count how many times there's a, a couple of Facebook groups I'm a part of and every once in a while, like, you know, mom groups and every once in a while there will be a post in one of them that is not, it's not a birth community or a birth group, but it's just a mom group. And every once in a while they'll say, there'll be a post about, you know, I've had two C-sections, but I think I might want to try a vaginal birth this time. Does anyone ever had to be back after two C-sections? And then I'll, and then I'll always like read through what has been said before I comment. And there's always a labor and delivery nurse on there somewhere that says, VBAC after two C-sections is so scary. Oh my gosh, I'd be so worried about mm-hmm. you and your baby. Mm-hmm. Please don't try it. Please, it's really, really scary. There's so much more risks. The doctors I work with won't even do them because they're so scary. You know, and there's always some some other, another parent on the group that says, you know, I had six C-sections and I loved all of them. And they were amazing. So I wouldn't put your baby's life at risk by trying for a VBAC after two C-sections. There's always comments like this. I swear to you, every single time. And then I slowly make my little way in and I say, (laughs) hey, do you know what? VBAC after two C-sections is a safe and reasonable option. And here's a blog um, saying so. And with all the updated information, actually, ACOG even recommends it as a safe option. And then I drop our blog which is at the vbacklink.com slash blog. It's called VBAC after two C-sections, five things you need to know. And then I say, if anyone ever tells you it's too scary, ask them for the statistics and for the evidence to back that up. Because I guarantee you, whenever you, if you ever do that, nobody will, will have any facts to back that up. But I have facts. Here are my facts. And I never target it at anybody in the group specifically I just say, if people are telling you it's too scary, ask them how scary. Ask them what the actual facts are. And then I give them the actual facts. And never once, I've done this several times, and never once have any of those labor and delivery nurses or moms or whoever saying it's so scary come back and reply to my comment. Not once. But you know what happens? After I comment, there's more people that start commenting. I had a VBAC after two C-sections. My sister did, and it was great. Make sure you find a supportive provider, but it takes me or not always me, but somebody jumping in and with actual facts and evidence to shift the conversation. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to just highlight a couple of things that are in our blog. First of all, our fabulous Megan, her podcast story is episode number two. So if you want to go all the way back and listen to her story, it's pretty incredible. But your chances of having a successful VBAC after two C-sections are very similar to those of having a VBAC after just one cesarean. Even ACOG, like I said, in their practice bulletin number 184 about VBAC, goes over two large studies. And the studies have like sample sizes large enough to account for like small variances in population and things like that. 
And they even say that the success rates between VBAC and VBAC after two C-sections vary by less than 2%. So for example, if your chances of success after VBAC are 70%, then your chances of having a VBAC after two C-sections are like 68%. That's what I mean by the 2% variation. So the success rates, pretty dang close. I would say even the same. Um, like I said, ACOG recommends VBAC after two C-section as a safe option. I'm going to actually quote them here. And they say that it is reasonable to consider women with two previous low transverse cesarean deliveries to be candidates for TOLAC and to counsel them based on the combination of other factors that affect their probability of achieving a successful VBAC. We hate using the word like success or failure from, for birth, but that's just what ACOG says. Choosing a repeat cesarean does not eliminate your chance of rupture. What? What do you mean? If I schedule my C-section, it doesn't eliminate my chance of rupture? Are you kidding me? People people walk around like, yeah, my C-section is scheduled for 39 weeks. So I, they think all the risks are gone. First of all, there's risks with repeat cesarean we're not going to get into. But it is your history of cesarean that, that puts you at you risk, risk of rupture, not attempting a vaginal birth after cesarean. Plenty of women have ruptured before even going into labor. It just happens. Not to make you afraid. It's it's still really rare, but Way it does rare. happen. Yeah, yeah, but it does. It, it does it happen. There are things you can do to minimize uterine rupture risks. And I want to talk about some of the things that Mary did. First of all, she labored at home as long as possible, which included staying away from the medicalization of birth. So the earlier you get to the hospital, you're on a clock for longer, they're going to want to start Pitocin. They're going to want to strap you down to the bed. They're going to want to give you an epidural. All that immobility, all of those um, interventions can increase your risk of rupture slightly. So she stayed away from induction. Avoid augmentation of labor, which means speeding it up. Things that speed it up like Pitocin. Avoid excessive Pitocin. Now, VBAC can be induced safely, but start it out low and go slow. No need to start Pitocin pit at a four and raise it by four. Yes, I've actually seen that in a VBAC mom. That is called pit to distress. We do not want to do that. Um, avoid Cytotec, Cervidil, Evening Primrose Oil. Um, there's a couple other gel prostaglandins. Any artificial prostaglandins that are used to ripen the cervix, avoid them completely. Those increase your risk of rupture by, by a pretty significant amount. Um, avoid providers who aggressively intervene. Stay mobile, walk, change positions. In early labor, if labor stalls, rest or sleep. Don't try and pick it back up. Mm -hmm. Sometimes your body just needs a break. Do everything you can to make sure baby is in an optimal position before labor begins. And that, I would add to that, that you are creating enough space in the pelvis for baby to move in. So LOA is not the only position that matters. And we are going to talk about that in another episode. Um, avoid breaking your water artificially. Avoid an epidural if possible. Again, for the mobility have attentive labor support with you all the time. And guess what? That's what Mary did. She said, I think she called it the birth dream team. She had a provider birth dream team because she had a supportive provider. She had a doula. She had a husband who knew what was going on. All those things can help reduce your risk of rupture. But also, if rupture does happen, they will be aware of the differences and be able to alert medical staff immediately if your provider's not in the room with you. And then last but not least, I would say honor your intuition. I think it most of the uterine rupture stories that we've heard, somebody has felt that something was not quite right mm -hmm. before a rupture has been identified. Megan was at a rupture and Megan knew, 
Megan knew, I always, I'm so proud of you, Megan. Megan knew <laughs> that her client had ruptured two hours before the I midwife am. even acknowledged anything. And then... Even the OB. Even the OB. Nobody believed that her client had ruptured yeah. until she was having a repeat cesarean and they saw a two centimeter rupture in the yeah. scar. Mm-hmm. Insane. Yeah. Honor that mama's intuition. Um, we have a story about uterine rupture on our podcast for with Heather. And even she felt like something was wrong before her uterus rupture. So listen to that intuition. And then the last but not least, the risk for rupture is still incredibly low. Maybe even the same as a VBAC after just one C-section. Now, what I would say is that it's really hard because most VBAC after two cesarean research studies don't have controls for Pitocin or other drug use. And even ACOG suggests that by reducing interventions and the use of Pitocin in induction, it will likely reduce the um, uterine rupture, especially aggressive interventions. So um, nearly all of the VBAC after two C-sections studies that have been done actually aggressively use Pitocin for more than half of their participants. So it's kind of hard to say what the true rate of rupture is for VBAC after two C-sections, but ACOG sums it up to 1.4%, which is still less than 2%, which is the recommended, to be below the recommended rate. What am I trying to say? ACOG says, if your risk is of rupture is less than 2%, that's an acceptable risk. Now, I would say that it's even lower than that because if you avoid Pitocin and other interventions and induction and things like that. So, pretty awesome. I would say this is the biggest thing. Um, for some people, 1.4% chance of rupture or less is not an acceptable risk. And for some people, it is. But this is the thing. Get educated. Know the mm-hmm. facts. Know what the statistics are. Anyone that comes to you saying it's so risky and you and your baby will die, ask them what the odds are of that. Ask them for the chances or ask them for the statistics, ask them for the rates and stand up for yourself because like Megan, you too can find a provider that is going to support you on your VBAC after two C-sections. Now, you might just have to talk to 12 providers before you find that magical one, but it's possible. We're here for you. Join our VBAC link community on Facebook and let us know. Let us know how you're going in your search. Let us know what made your provider supportive or non-supportive and where you're on your journey because we would really love to meet you. All right, Mary, thank you so much for sharing your story. It was so good to finally get to talk to you. you. And I am so happy that you got your VBAC after two C-sections. Your story just gave me all the feels and all the goosebumps. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, guys. I I appreciate you guys so much, and I'm so glad that I found your podcast, and I just came in the right timing, and I just, I recommend your podcast to many, 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 many VBAC moms in our community, Aww. so keep up the good work, ladies. Thank, thank you so you. much. And Mary's actually a doula as well, so... Mary, I will drop a link to your doula page, or we'll tag your Instagram on your post. What is your Instagram? Awesome. Lakeshore Lakeshore. underscore doulas. Lakeshore underscore doulas. We will tag you on our post, so if anyone wants to reach out to you, you know where to find Mary. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Head over to thevbacklink.com slash share and submit your story. For more information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julie and Megan's bios, head over to thevbacklink.com. 
Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.